You're listening to Marks of a Healthy Church, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. All right, so this week is lesson four, and it is our final act, or it is uh, a lesson about the final act of, of the biblical story, and so we will get started. All right, so it's necessary, I think, to go over a little bit um, what we looked at last week. Last week, we kind of split things up into four different narrative categories, and these are the central emphases, if that's a word, of the New Testament. The first one being the incarnation, which is God coming to dwell with man bodily fulfilling the office of the image bearer and acting as the one and only necessary and proper mediator between God and man. All right, so he fulfills the office of image bearer as an incarnated Christ, God. He acts as the one and only necessary and proper mediator between God and man. We recognize that the incarnation is distinctly Christian. Okay, there's no other faith or worldview that that holds that truth, and it is, in fact, the central claim of Christianity and what makes us Christians. And earlier, in our first class together, um, we recognized that the key to understanding the Scriptures, when we read the Scriptures, we need to see it through the lens of the Incarnation. It was on the road to Emmaus that the disciples were sad and without joy, thinking that Jesus was gone from them. Yet Christ was beheld to the disciples through the Scriptures and in the breaking of bread. So that is how we see and experience Christ, in the scriptures and in the breaking of bread. We should see as we read through scripture that this teaching is really the fountainhead of all Christian doctrine, being the incarnation. The Old Testament is an anticipation of it, and the New Testament is a witness and response to it. Also last week we looked at the ministry of Jesus and how he displayed his authority over all things. He began by reversing the curse through healing and cleansing and clarified the law through teaching and by his example. The Gospels are where the acts of Jesus' ministry are recorded. And although in each Gospel we can see a different point of emphasis or different points or themes, different themes being developed, we should also be able to recognize the harmony of the overall direction of the Gospels, having their culmination in Christ's final Passion Week and also the majority of the content of their body. I don't remember the number, but it's something like 40% of the narrative in the Gospels is dealing with Christ's final week, Um, which sort of tells us something that it's it's maybe important. And so that final week, which we call the Passion Week, or Jesus' suffering, is really the point of all of Scripture not to be understood or opposed as in competition to the teaching of the Incarnation. And this is something I think I failed to mention last week. But so we don't hold them in tension with each other, but to be seen as a completion of the Incarnation. We believe in a God-man and not a God-baby. It sounds silly. Um, Every thought relating to the birth of Christ implicitly speaks or echoes of his passion. And how not only he suffered at the hands of men, <clears throat> which, are, which were his, his own beloved creation, 
but also how he submitted himself to the wrath of God for sin in, against sin in our place. And so this completed incarnation of God marks the establishment of a new humanity. This new people called the church no longer find themselves in Adam as slaves to their former, former lusts, but having been born again in Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are sent into the world to spread the message of God's kingdom, also called the kingdom of heaven. Being a new creation, with Christ as the head, and the church as his mystical body. Not a physical body, but a mystical body. Finally then, continuing to recognize that the Old Testament develops and ends with the expectation and hope of a forever Davidic kingdom. So that's how the Old Testament ends, and the New Testament chronicles the establishment of that very kingdom, and names it the church. The last thing for us to do then is to look at how the Bible portrays that early church, which is the conclusion of the biblical narrative, or one might say the final act. And so on the handout, we begin um, with Christ's reign in the, in the new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Um, first point being the church moves forward. So we have a few scriptures that we'll look up. If someone could grab... Acts 9.31 and 12.24. Probably the same person can grab those two. They might be on the same page. And Acts 16.5, somebody else. And then finally Acts 19.20. So like the Israelites in their conquest of Canaan, the church, the kingdom being led by God, so similarities in both respects, finds itself in a land but not yet possessing all the land. They're still enemies, although they're both pictured as gaining ground. So Acts 6-7, I'll read. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Firstly, in the church, we see the gospel going out to the Jews, the earliest converts to budding Judeanity. The earliest converts to budding Christianity had Jewish roots. And it's worth noting that it all started in Jerusalem, where it could have easily been proven uh, by producing Jesus' body. And so, um, in chapter 6 and 7, if we read further, um, we see uh, the, the story of the first martyr of the church, Stephen, being actually being a witness, exercising his biblical theology, um, uh, telling the whole story of Scripture, proclaiming it starting with the word of the Lord to Abraham and culminating in the coming of the just one in verse 52. So this, again, is a textbook example of biblical theology. If you want this afternoon to go back and read that story, you'll really see all of what I tried to do in a much more concise and um, very, very good way. Um, So whoever's got 931, who'd like to read that? Dan. Then had the churches rest throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the cover of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Right. So that's the picture um, of the church that Acts gives to us. And we'll see this again and again in a minute, but it's just growing and growing and moving forward. Um, so even, even when the church faced difficulty, in the form of imprisonment, we read in Acts twelve twenty four. So the word of God grew and multiplied. There you go. So that was 
yeah, just the way that that it it's uh, recorded for us. They move forward. It almost seems like nothing could stop the church. Through the teachings of the apostles, the church grew and was edified. Um, who has chapter sixteen, verse five, Andrew? And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. So again, that's that's three verses now where the same story is being told. Um, Neither evil spirits nor idolatry stopped the progression of the church, as recorded in chapter 19 of Acts. While Paul and Apollos spent time in Ephesus preaching the kingdom amidst some believing and yet some unbelieving Jews and Greeks alike, we see the result as stated in verse 20, 19 and 20. Pastor? So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Amen. And so that is the picture that Acts and the, the biblical narrative provides for us of Christ's church and kingdom moving forward. It almost seems unhindered. Everything that would have happened and occurred to them that in our minds would we would think would stall it or interrupt the church, seem to even help it. And so, um, the next section or, or point is that a new teaching is being preached. Um, does somebody, has somebody grabbed Acts 28 yet? Sorry. If, if it's coming up, I might not fit out. Do we have it up here? Okay. When they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Mm-hmm. And then I, I got verse 31 written down here, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And so right away we can see that the, ch- the church's message, what they were preaching, is focused specifically on Christ and his kingdom. It's a message that can be found throughout all of Scripture, which we've seen over and over again, and it's uh, repeated again here, from the Law of Moses to the Prophets. And then we see they preached from morning till evening. So even in its narrow focus, just preaching the things concerning the kingdom and of Christ, there's a ton of material to cover and to unpack. Um, yeah, I don't think they were just repeating the same things over and over again. So the Old Testament was what the apostles used as the foundation of their teachings, interpreted through the lens of Christ and his suffering. And though we see the church um, exploding across the Middle East, we could, we could beg the question, are we sure that all that's needed is this message? Okay, is, is, is the Bible what we have today? I mean, they didn't have much of the New Testament, but we do. Um, is the Bible sufficient? And that's our next point. Scripture is sufficient. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Somebody probably knows that off by heart. I can read it. Yeah, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, as profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So, again we see this theme of the whole scripture being repeated. It's all scripture. It's all profitable. We have to recognize its unified nature. And so in saying that the, all of scripture is profitable for use, he says for use in doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction, 
In what setting might we, might we use or encounter these words? Where do we receive doctrine, church. reproof? Church. They're church words. These aren't words where we go and sit under a tree and read the Bible by ourselves. But in fact, it is, um, it's, it's implying the church. And so, we go to church and we experience doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction. But unto what end? What are all these things doing for us? It says in verse 17, it says, To make us unto perfection, completeness as a man of God, as a new human in Christ. Not moral perfection. It's not talking about moral perfection, but maturity of faith. So we should see that a greater understanding of Scripture leads us to a greater trusting in God's Word. If that's absent, we would probably beg the question, did you understand it, right? We can see this by Paul's use of the word furnished. Okay, That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished. It's not empty. Interesting that he uses an analogy here pertaining to a building, possibly even the temple. But we don't have to understand it that way to understand what he's saying. So I work in the construction industry, and I guess it's in the construction industry and the realty business, um, but there's a term called closing day, and that's the day where the deal or, or the house is finished and the keys change hands from either one owner to the other. In the construction industry, the owner would be the contractor, and he hands over the keys, and there you go. You have received your brand new house. But even though all the work is done in building the edifice, it's still empty. And I think if you were to move into a brand new house, no matter how fantastic it was, it would be really difficult to live there in any sort of way, functional way, um, without its furnishings. So, a house um, is not a home until it has been furnished. And really, even with furnishings left empty, it's pretty useless. So we see that these furnishes have a purpose, and it isn't complete until it is furnished and used. So, by the instruction of the church, or under the instruction of the church, and by the means of Scripture, um, we are made useful unto good works. And it is in those good works that God is glorified. That is the end of the church, or the purpose of the church, and it is the nature of our worship. So then, does 2 Timothy 2, 3 or 2 Timothy 3, um, give us an indication of like what those good works might be? I think we actually have to go to 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16 to see that. <clears throat> so the question is, what are the nature of these good works? And so, does somebody have 1 Peter 1, 13? Oh, Pastor. Joanne wants it. She can have it. No, it's okay. <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which has called you was holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Yeah, and I'll read verse 22. Seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another in a pure heart, with a pure heart fervently. So in other words, 
by remembering the hope of eternal life found in Jesus, continue being made like him into an obedient child of God by denying your self-fulfilling passions and being continuously purified into the image of God by obedience, exemplified by Jesus' love expressed towards his brothers. How did Jesus express his love or the love of God to his brothers? By the sacrifice of the cross. It was Christ's submission in the garden to the will of the Father that is our example to replace the example of the disobedience that Adam gave us in his garden, which is, in fact, true worship, recognizing God's authority, the authority in his word. We see examples of this all throughout the early church, people identifying with Christ in his sufferings. All the apostles, according to tradition, were martyred except for John. We've already looked at Stephen and what he endured as a martyr for Christ. Paul suffers. We see that. We're very familiar in this church with Paul and his sufferings going through Acts. Um, And he even explains a little bit why he suffered, so that some may be saved. Many extreme examples of suffering have been recorded for us in history. And the church is always being called to a life of martyrdom as witnesses to Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 Do I have that one? No, I'll just read that. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? That seems to be, I mean, there's no qualifier. Well, I guess the qualifier is (laughs) if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. And see, we often associate martyrdom with societal persecution, right? The only way you can be a martyr is if, you know, Nero turns you into candle in his garden. But that's not the only case. That's not the only way we're martyrs. Even in a society like ours that is tolerant of Christianity, your desires and the devil are not. The Christian can never escape war. We are the church militant. But how does the church fight? How do we fight the world and the flesh and the devil? I think Ephesians 6.10 tunes us in. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. In verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, being referred here, um, should be a great comfort to the church. Right? We, we, we can trust in those things. But notice the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God being the only weapon mentioned to equip the church. So, a proper proclamation of God's Word is the way that God's kingdom fights the powers of darkness in the world. It's by preaching. That's our weapon. What message, then, does the church preach? Which is our next two points. Peace between God and man and peace between men. This is what the church preaches. Um, does anybody have Ephesians two, thirteen to 22? Rachel? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together to dwell the place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Peace between God and man. In that section of scripture, I mean, it is just seeping with images of reconciliation and peace and, and uh, even the building being fitly framed together, you know, no, no friction or, or disjointedness. There's an emphasis of peace and recon- reconciliation between God and man. And this is the message of the gospel. <clears throat> Romans 8.1 also There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So peace is the fundamental effect of the gospel. The good news is, as the angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, light and life to all he brings, mild he lays his glory by, born that no more man may die, that man no more may die, right? So many good hymns. Um, So without a true reconciliation between God and man, we are still dead in our sins. The outflow of this reality is that the church also preaches peace between men, okay? So that is peace between God and man is the first part, this is the gospel, but then the outflow of that reality is also a peace between men. Because of our union with Christ, who is God, who has peace with men, we too should have peace with other men. This teaching being expressed throughout the New Testament, rooted even in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew six twelve, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is part of the ethic of Christ's kingdom, mercy and grace, which is the only way to truly have unity, which is what the church is called to, as Paul pleads for unity in Ephesians 4. I beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation or calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's peace what actually brings us together. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. So we are called to patiently and humbly restrain ourselves to keep the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. It is a common peace of the kingdom under Christ, the Prince of Peace, that has knit us together. And that ought to be the message preached from our pulpits, found in our studies, and acted out in the lives of the saints. It's imperative that this peace is displayed in the church, because the church is on display to the whole world, which is our next point. The church... Yeah. Just that point, you know, yeah. you, you read then talking about how important the gospel is, and we want to move away from that. But unless we understand the reconciliation that was made between us and God, 
it's impossible for us to reconcile other people because they're right. sinful and they're wicked and they hurt me, forgetting that we've done that to God, and yet we've been reconciled. And yeah. that whole thing, it should penetrate it the just, church. Yeah. It does. And without that, churches get to be a mess. Absolutely. Yeah, always going back to the gospel. And, and it's because we're on display to the whole world. Um, Ephesians 3, 9 to 10. Eric? And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be, be known by the church the mental and wisdom of God. Right. Thank you. The whole world, whether earthly or spiritual, the church is the expression of the mystery of God's gracious love and plan. Okay? So e- even what we don't see in the heavenly realms is, is watching in, in amazement at the peace um, provided for in the church. And so the next point I have is the exile ethic. Okay, that goes along with this piece. This is a further explanation of um, what that piece might look like. Does uh, somebody have Jeremiah 29, 5 and 7? Andrew? Uh, build ye houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away. Sorry. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Right. So this was the instructions to, to Israel that was in exile. Um, as they did not have their kingdom in its fullness, right? They had been removed from their land and from um, the borders of Israel. Um, so too, the church ha- is, is in a similar situation. Um, and we can see in 1 Timothy 2, 1-3, Paul gives very similar instructions. Did anybody grab that one? Pastor? 1-3. 1-3. One I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior. Amen. So the call to live a quiet and peaceable life is applied to the dispersed children of Israel and as well the church. So as the church displays this newly acquired peace, it does so in, because it's in a circumstance of unconsummated or incomplete glory. And, and that we often refer to it as an already but not yet, a state of already but not yet. So um, the next point, a foretaste of glory. Um, If we understand the church as being part of a budding kingdom, um, yet removed from that kingdom, we can talk about it as a heavenly outpost. So the definition of an outpost is a small military camp or position at some distance from the main force. 
used especially as a guard against attack. Um, so the kingdom has not yet come in all its glory, yet in the church we have seen it's already at war. And it fights for the purposes of the kingdom, which are justice, mercy, and faith. Uh, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. that's um, when Jesus declared woe on the Pharisees for, uh, for neglecting justice, mercy, and faith, calling these the weightier matters of the law. Um, fighting, of course, through the power of the Spirit, God's Word. It's important to notice that, it's, that an outpost is not the final expression of authority. Rather, if we think about an outpost, every outpost has but two possible futures. Either it will be disposed of, a greater pow- disposed of by a greater power, or the kingdom it represents will ov- overcome all the opposing forces, and then it will no longer be an outpost. And that is the hope of the church. And so how do we, see, how do we as the church imagine this overcoming? By the return of its king. So it's not that the outpost finishes the battle and does the job, but that its king comes back and rules. Um, so the church anticipates the glorious return of Christ. Acts 1, 10 to 11. That's a good short one. Katie? Oh, sorry. And when I looked steadfastly toward heaven, I went up. Behold, two men stood by them and Amen. And so that's kind of the verse that expresses our hope. We hope that Jesus Christ is coming back the same way he left us. Um, the word the church has used to, uh, that's associated with that second coming is parousia, and it literally means being present. We anticipate the physical presence of our King, at which time he will bring to completion the plan of God, of which two things remain, the final judgment and all things being made new. So the final judgment is the return of Christ, or in the return of Christ, it will be accompanied by a final judgment, a just judgment of all things, does somebody have Second Thessalonians one seven eight? Dan. And you, you who were troubled, rest with us. And the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with many angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And nine. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord? And from the glory of his power. Right. So that is what the church believes, that, that Jesus Christ is going to come back and um, those who are not peaceable through the gospel will be made peaceable. And um, it should be a terrifying thought because, I mean, we stand, uh, we stand no chance against the power of God. And number two, all things being made new. After the judgment, we anticipate a recreation in glory. So the church waits with Abraham for a city whose foundations were laid by God. Second uh, Peter 2 and verse 13. Does anybody want to read that one? 2 Peter 2, 13. 
Does it say three on the? That's three here. Oh. Three and thirteen. I must have. It might be three and thirteen. <laughs> it starts with nevertheless. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. All right. Was it three thirteen? Yep. Perfect. I wrote it down. My notes wrong. <laughs> so, that is what we're waiting for. Um. A new heavens and a new earth. And that's a very familiar thought for me because it wasn't all that long ago that we just did um, our, our lesson on heaven and we kind of looked at what, what to expect there and what the sense of that is. Um, it's a reminder of what a hope in the gospel is actually, um, what a hope in the gospel actually is yet hoping for. Right? So Peter's saying, you know, Nevertheless, we're here, but we won't always be here. This too shall pass. And then Peter goes on to explain later that because this is our hope, we ought to be found in Christ, again, in peace, without spot, and blameless. A great example of Peter exercising his biblical theology and its fruit. So, um, not looking and getting wrapped up in just heaven or future things, um, but actually applying that and the whole story of Scripture and finding where He is in that story. And so, finally, Christ's eternal rule, under Christ's glorious rule, sin, death, pain, and tears will be replaced by the immediate presence of God. That word immediate, if we really look at it, it's unmediated, right? It's, It's the unmediated presence of God. God himself will be wiping our tears away, according to Revelation 21.4. And this is how Isaac Watt puts it. Isaac Watts, No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. And so the blessings of God will flow literally as far and as bad as the world and our current situation has become. His blessings will flow and cover them even further. Dr. Paul R. Williamson, lecturer in Old Testament, Hebrew, and Aramaic, puts it this way, the very heart of the Bible's message is the good and right reign of God over all his people and over all his creation. And so um, he's got a book on biblical theology and that kind of sums up, is trying to sum up as we kind of work through a conclusion here of what the whole story of God's message is in the Bible. It's the good and right reign of God over all his people and over all his creation. So Christ's eternal rule is, in fact, God's story. That that is the story. So, at the end of the day, healthy biblical theology illustrates that all of Holy Scripture, from the original curse and blessing in the garden, to the promises to Abraham and to Moses and to Israel and David, in summary, is a story about God the King and his loving and gracious purposes of saving a people for himself to delight in his glorious presence forever. This framework is the bumpers on the bowling lane that keep us from the expositional gutter. And so we will close with two things. One, by remembering the early church who were fed by Christ and thoroughly watered in biblical theology, their first confession being Jesus is Lord. The truth behind that statement is what united them and caused their peace. 
And then finally, by agreeing with St. John in his final thought and prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. And so, that is the final act of Scripture. Hopefully that is hopeful and helpful.